Hello and welcome to the Culture Mirrors podcast. I'm Andy Williams. I'm Sean Wilson. And this week we're going to be talking to you about some of the latest releases, some of the latest TV shows, as well as uh, we're going to cover a little bit of Oscar chats. It's obviously been a week since they've uh, since they were announced and all the dust has settled and the whole Oscar's so white thing has gone away for another year. So Sean, what were your thoughts? Predictable as usual. Except for? Except for Best Picture. The main one. Which went to Spotlight. Uh, and also Mark Rylance getting Best Supporting Actor over Sylvester Stallone, which clearly annoyed some so-called celebrities within the Hollywood Tony <laughs> Frank Stallone. Um, and Arnie. Yeah, well, yeah, Arnie. Yeah, Arnie didn't didn't actually say anything insulting, though, did he? Um, I think he just. Observed. I think he struggled to get a sentence together, which was quite quite sentimental. Get down. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know what? I, I was quite happy with Spotlight getting best picture i mean as we've discussed on this podcast it's it's a model of impeccable research and steadily building tension and great journalism yes yeah and and it gets the craft of journalism absolutely right i thought it was a better written film than a than a directed one hence that's why alejandro g and yuritu got the director for the revenant although i wouldn't have given it to him i would have given george it, miller yeah george miller for mad max uh which was screwed over apart from the technical categories which was a shame yeah and you know leo predictably ran away with his oscar and yeah you know i think that you know his it was it was an award for his physical commitment he's played much more interesting characters than that i would rather it had gone to him for something like the wolf of wall street in which you know the the horrendous nature of the character is much more confrontational and interesting Although it's not as physically grueling. Yeah, well, you could say that about, you know, Jack in Titanic in comparison to Hugh Glass of The Revenant. Oh, interesting. Well, Expand. Well, I, I don't want to spend too long talking yeah, no, no, about no. Leonardo's career. However, um, I think that there's more to, to Jack in Titanic other than just straight up revenge. He's a man that wants to get out and he's looking for something in life. And I think there's a lot more to that character than than Hugh Glass. So he's more than, in the words of the Honest Trailers, an unfathomably sexy peasant, as he's described. He's in the that too. Titanic. He yeah. is that too. You know, what with his 90s curtains and everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Looks <laughs> like he stepped out of Hanson. <laughs> Bop, indeed. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of uh, great music, uh, Ennio Morricone won a, an Oscar for his score. Yay! Yeah, this was, this was the most important win of the night. Forget Leo. Uh, he was always going to get it. And... <laughs> um, yeah, the fact that Ennio Morricone got his first ever Best Original Score Oscar. First ever. He has received an Oscar before, back in 2007, but that was a Lifetime Achievement Award and didn't really mean anything. That was just... That's sort of, a, just a Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah, yeah, that was just a perfunctory thing that Hollywood threw at him. It wasn't actually an Oscar for a specific score. They've actually finally realised the error of their ways after he's been in the industry for about 50-odd years. Isn't this effectively the same thing, though? No, not really. Throwing one for the sum of his career? No, 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 because they've awarded it to him for the hateful and hatefully encapsulates why he is as revered as he is that he is a brilliant storyteller and he puts soul into each film that he scores all 500 of them reportedly he's got soul but he's not a soldier i've got ham but i'm not a hamster very true very true (laughs) that's a bill bailey in joke for anybody who doesn't get it 
If you don't get that, then stop listening. We don't <laughs> exactly, want you. it's not going to get any better. <laughs> we, we don't want you on this podcast if you don't get that joke. Uh, um, We're joking, by the way. Please come back. Yes, please. Yeah, please don't leave us. Uh, by the way, uh, I think we should tell people where we are now available. Well, you mean the biggest news of the last yes, two weeks? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the biggest news of the last two weeks is that we are now available on iTunes. So you can now subscribe on your Apple device, or indeed via iTunes, to the podcast, all you've got to do is search for Culture Mirrors. We will not be putting up the entire back catalogue purely because um, it comes up out of order. So we don't want to mess with anyone's head. It will be from the, not the last episode, the one before. Um, it'll be from there onward that it will be available on iTunes. So that's great news for everyone. Obviously, you can always find us as well on Twitter at Culture Mirrors. You can find us on Facebook on the Culture Mirrors page as well as uh, just send an email to andy at culturemirrors.com. You should probably remember that, shouldn't you? Yes, I? you really should. Andy at culturemirrors.com. Um, if you want to get an email read out or just send us some thoughts, um, we will cover Sean's whoring in a little bit. Um, Whole corner. But before then, he's going to actually do some work for us because, uh, <laughs> as, as you may or may not have heard, uh, I have kind of stinking cold, so I've not um, gone to the cinema. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Boo-hoo. Um, so... Sean will uh, will be telling us about some of the films that are out. So why don't we start with the latest Coen Brothers effort, Hail Caesar? Oh, this is a good start. This is a good start. It's only going to get worse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, like you say, new new uh, uh, Coen Brothers movie. Well, the thing is with the Coen Brothers, every they're one of the very few um, filmmaking filmmaking duos in Hollywood who seemingly can work outside of the system and who can work with stories that are entirely theirs they very rarely appear to suffer from any kind of studio interference or compromise every single film that they do pretty much maybe give give or take a couple of exceptions is completely their vision you're never at a loss to distinguish a coen brothers movie whether it's you know something like the darkness of no country for old men or the you know, the, the wintry landscapes of fargo or something you know relatively more light-hearted like the big lebowski i stress the word relatively there um or the hudsucker proxy i mean you i've not seen the hudsucker proxy that's the only one of theirs i haven't watched it's very very good is it yes. yeah um okay. i'll check it to you it's fine yeah um I think what's very interesting whilst we're talking about their career is that they seem to do a, right, let's do a dark one and then let's do a really zany comedy. So I think, wasn't it No Country Old Men? They followed up with Burn, Burn After, After Reading. Reading yeah. Um, so I I think that balance is something that they strike really, really well. And when you're looking at some of the great Coen Brothers films like your Fargo's, like your Big Lebowski's, they have elements of both. Where does Hail Caesar fit into that? It's certainly one of their lighter ones. I think I often have mixed responses to the Coen Brothers comedies. I love The Big Lebowski, but I, I have mixed reactions. I mean, I thought the likes of Intolerable Cruelty and The Lady Killers were awful. I, I don't think that's a particularly controversial opinion. Um, but when they do comedy, I think they're on shakier ground. When they tend to do more dramatic, meaty stuff, I, I tend to be engaged. However, Hail Caesar is one of their lighter works I actually really liked. Um, I really enjoyed it. Would you stand on Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I'm, I'm not a fan of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, I have to say. That's one of the ones that sort of goes over my head. I know everyone says that it. And the soundtrack is great. Uh, but what, the Soggy Bottom Boys? Yeah, the Soggy Bottom Boys, yeah. Uh, was it Big Rock Candy Mountain and all that? Um, I just find that the, the storyline itself just meandering and a bit, you know, self-consciously twee. And, you know, I, I, it's not one of my favourites. But I liked Hail Caesar um, precisely for the reason that it's nice. 
it's a nice film and you can't often use that word to describe the Coen brothers because there is often even even in something like the big Lebowski or raising arizona there is there are edges of darkness around the edge of the story i mean you look think of raising arizona it's a story about child kidnapping which is the most unpalatable subject ever although it is very funny whereas with this there's not a hint of cynicism or bitterness at all it is just a lovely celebration of movie making so the, the story is josh brolin with whom the coens have obviously worked on no country and true grit uh, of Men in Black 3 fame. Yes, and that was on, actually, the Men in Black 3 was on the other day. My goodness me, that's a brilliant Tommy Lee Jones impression that he did. It's absolutely the best thing in that film. It is, it really is. I don't think he got enough credit for that. No, no, it's great. He's a really good actor. When you see it in the trailer, just to digress slightly, when you see in the trailer just the moment of him being Tommy Lee Jones as a younger man, yeah. you're like, oh, wow. And that sort of goes when you watch the film, because the film's not very good. But And he's also in Goonies. Just to throw out another credit. Is he in the Goonies, is he? Yeah. Oh, I never knew He's that. their old brother, Brand. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Never knew that. Um, so, uh, yeah. Please continue. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, he's a, he's a really good actor. And in, in um, Hail Caesar, he plays uh, uh, Eddie Mannix, who is a, a fixer, who's basically the guy in the 1950s studio system who has to go around hushing up old scandals and basically keeping the general, you know, industry working so he can't have any of the stars embroiled in anything that's remotely unpalatable and he's 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 basically got his hands full dealing with all of these you know superstar egos um he works at capital pictures which you'll real recognize as an in joke from had a proxy nope no before then gone go barton fink oh yeah See, I watched Barton Fink again recently, and I think that's one of their great masterpieces. Well, I think, I think that's a little bit cheating because I haven't seen Barton Fink in years, and you expect me to bring that well, up. Well, I didn't realise you hadn't seen it in years. Is that my fault? Yes. Well, you should have seen it in, in anticipation of this one coming out. If you'd have told me to, then I would because I am you, at your behest. Yeah, you're completely reliant on me. Yeah, thanks. For all things taste, for all things film related, I require your, uh, your direction. <laughs> Right, flattery will Hence get you obviously everywhere. the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, he works at Capital Pictures, which was the the um the studio that featured in Barton Fink, although this is much more of a lighter souffle of a movie compared to Barton Fink, which was a you know devilish satire about you know John Turturro selling his soul to become a Hollywood writer. Which he then did in Transformers. Yes, exactly, yeah. Uh yes, prescient. Um so Mannix is going around fixing all of the stuff behind the scenes on on the lot. Um there are several um massive productions that, that are that are on the go so you have the movie of the title hail caesar which is a prestige bible picture starring baird whitlock played by george clooney who is doing the brilliantly doing that slightly meat-headed i am an american actor completely out of place in all of this toga roman thing you think of john wayne in in uh, i think it's the greatest story ever told in it truly this was the son of god that's what i was thinking when i was watching Ladies and gentlemen, that's our first impression of the day. Actually, it's the second because you did hear I did Arnie earlier. Oh, I tried to ignore that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so so that's going on. Um, there is also um, you have Olden Ehrenreich, a brilliantly scene stealing performance as this who Olden Ehrenreich using that beautiful pictures movie, that sort of sub. Um, quasi young adult fantasy thing that came out a few years ago. He's been in a few other things as well. Um, but he's in the name again. Olden Ehrenreich. Do you want me to say it again? Nope. Google it. Uh, yeah. Um, he, he plays this sort of hick cowboy actor called Hobie Doyle, who is plucked from his his latest cowboy role and put into this sort of classy, prestigious sort of drawing room drama to which he is hilariously unsuited. Um, and that leads to a 
attention with the director Lawrence Lorenz played by um, Ray Fiennes doing yet another brilliant comic performance um, I was thinking about this earlier actually when I was thinking about the film is yep. that um, when you look at the, the lead two actors from Schindler's List they've gone in very very they different career actually, paths yeah that's a really interesting point yeah yeah move on that no, was, no, no, that was I, my no, thought. I meant, I meant <laughs> it. I meant it. That's actually really, yeah, it's really true. Yeah, well, Ray Fine's doing well. Liam Neeson, box office doing well. In terms of prestige, not so much. Who's earning more money? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so Fine's was Voldemort. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, true. Um, so there are all these, there are all these various things going on. And the way that the Coens stage these movies within the movie, um, that are all various genres. You've got Bible pictures. You've got these prestigious dramas. You have this aquatic dance. Um, routine featuring uh, Scarlett Johansson's character Deanna Morgan which is obviously meant to be this Esther Williams style you know opulent aquatic display which is just beautifully done Esther Williams this is a very famous aquatic movie star back in back in the golden age of Hollywood I didn't know aquatic movies were a subgenre well yeah apparently she was she was famous for it. I read this up after as a result of Hail Caesar um, but so all of these things are going on and you have the you know the combination of Roger Deakins again working with Cohen's drinking in all of this you know beautiful attention to detail in the production design it's, it looks wonderful Roger Deakins the DOP the best DOP working in the business along with Emmanuel Lubetsky who obviously won for the Revenant this year um, um, you know and you have the score by Carter Burwell traverses all of these various genres so you know, all of the set pieces are brilliantly done and it's very clear that the Coens have a massive amount of affection with these movies and what I wouldn't be surprised if these were the movies with which they grew up. Um, so it's a celebration of all things Hollywood and what happens is that the plot, although the plot is, you know, in the manner of most Coen Brothers comedies, the plot is relatively incidental, that Baird Whitlock, George Clooney's character, ends up being kidnapped by insurgent communists and Mannix has got to deal with that. He's got to deal with all these other crises that I've mentioned. He's also, he he, he appears to be suffering from Catholic guilt because he is repeatedly seen smoking and he tells his wife, who he doesn't get to see as often as he wants, that no, I'm not smoking, but he has to because of the stress of the job. So you have this spiritual angst going on in the background. The movie actually starts off with this bit of choral music and a shot of a crucifix. So all of these various elements are sort of thrown in, thrown into a blender. And it, it, it is scrappy and it is all over the place, like you would expect from a Coen Brothers comedy. But the sweetness of it and the affection of it really took me by surprise. And I think that the Coens aren't, aren't in this particular movie to make you squirm or to make you feel, you know, a little bit, yeah, so there, sometimes there, there is a sense of smugness to their movies uh, not in this one I have to say that you know what they want to do with this they want to plug you into that love of myth making of movie making you know of the power of dreams and they want to celebrate the industry in which they work and I think they do it with a tremendous amount of joy. I think the way that they treat Josh Brolin's character in that he is, you know, in spite of the slightly manipulative role that he occupies, he is a family man. He loves his job. He's all, he's he's tempted by this offer from Lockheed, the aviation company. And he has to seriously consider whether he wants to do it because he loves doing what he does. He loves working in the movies. And so he therefore becomes, you know, the avatar for the Coens themselves. I thought it was, it's a lightweight film but it's a really charming one. How much is this uh, almost a reaction to the, the script Doctor and Rolls that they've had recently, the Coen brothers? I mean... Oh, like, you're talking about likes of Bridge of Spies and things? Yeah, that those sorts of things. Because uh, when was the last film they did? Inside Lewin Davis, wasn't it? Uh, Inside Lewin Davis, yeah, it probably was actually, yeah. So yeah. it's been a little bit of 
time between then and now, and um, they they have various little screen doctor in roles and stuff like that. So, um, just how much do you think it's a reaction to that of right? Let's do what we want. I mean, I think to be honest, whenever the Coen brothers make a film, they do what they want. I don't think there is ever a sense that the Coen brothers are doing what producers are telling them to do. They they have a really really singular sense of humour. I mean, I suppose one could say something like The Lady Killers was relatively more corporate and pointless and just horrible. Um, but then you're dealing with a classic British movie. But yeah, I think that... I don't know whether it's a reaction to their script writing as such. I mean, there was nothing in their script writing for the likes of Bridges, Spies and Unbroken to react to necessarily. I think it's clearly... I don't know whether they've just got to a stage where they thought, you know what? We, we did Barton Fink back in the 90s, which was a much more darker, brooding, edgier movie. Now is the time to, to do the you know the, the flip side to it and just make something that's irreverent and effervescent and and really charming, and they've done that. And the name of the film again? Hail Caesar. Excellent. So now, um, moving from one of the, the big releases uh, to one of the films that only Sean will ever go and see. Um, <laughs> They're propping up the box office, I am. Well, exactly, from all angles. And um, so in honour of the fact that it was in the UK Mothering Sunday yesterday, um, we are going to talk about Goodnight Mummy. Yes, so this is a, um, a really interesting uh, little Austrian horror film directed by... Right, bear with me here. Severin Fiala and Veronica Franz. What was the first one again? Severin Fiala and Veronica Franz. Okay. Yeah, I'm yeah. happy with those. Yeah, we're happy with those. Uh, they also wrote the screenplay as well. Um, so very, very um, disturbing, uh, as I've mentioned, Austrian horror movie about two kids who have seemingly been uh, left to their own devices in their Austrian home. You see this very um, swish um, Austrian house on the edge of a, of a forest, um, seemingly to some extent remote, a bit remote from the local town. At the start of the movie, um, you see them running through fields, exploring and everything. There, there appears to be a complete absence of a parental figure. Said parental figure then comes back into their lives in the form of their mother, or is it... Um, uh, uh, who is uh, now a a bandaged figure. She has bandages all around her face because she appears to be be recovering from some kind of recent facial surgery. Um, So she comes back into their lives, but not only has her face changed underneath the bandages, but also her personality seems to have changed for the worse. So has she become Nick Cage or John Travolta? They took my face off. No, you know they haven't turned into You asked for that. I did. Yeah. You did ask for that. No, it's not face off. It's not. It's not John. We're not going to get someone jumping through the door with doves in slow motion. You don't get that. Let's not have a go at John. No, Woo. I like John Woo's stuff. No, he's just yeah, hard boiled. He's great. Why? 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 Why are we talking about this? You distracted me. She was bandaged and then she came back and yeah, she had a you. different face. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, her personality seems to have changed. And little by little, the brothers seem to suspect that the person who has come back is not actually their mummy at all, but is somebody else. And this eventually leads to very horrifying um, repercussions. So it clearly, it's not a particularly original idea because the, the idea of both malevolent parents and malevolent children goes right the way back through horror. If you think of something like The Omen or The Midwitch Cuckoos or there was that 70s movie, The Other, in which um, there was the kid with the sibling, which they had that twisted relationship. And um, Children of the Corn. Naturally. Yeah, Children of the Corn, yeah, yeah. So all it, it's a very well-worn idea. I think um, what the movie does brilliantly is it toys with our sympathies in a really, really 
interesting and albeit very detached and quite antiseptic way it's got a very chilly look to it um at the start of the movie you're you're aligned you're you're mostly aligned with the children when the mother is this sort of bandaged horror this spectral figure wandering throughout the house you think oh okay i'm on the side of the kids here because you know at some point everyone's related to that idea of you know not trusting parental figures and it, it plays into that and yet about the halfway point your allegiances almost imperceptibly shift shift over to that of of the mother uh, or is it the mother and consequently it, it therefore it flips over and it becomes about fear of of children which is that you know i mentioned that that age-old idea in in horror cinema so it does that very that very fleet-footed thing of you know playing your your sympathies and your allegiances against each other it's got it's got a really weird creepy atmosphere that eventually spills over into something more more visceral and horrifying it's yes you're leaning in so in terms of a, a horror film is it chilling is it a jumpy is it uh no it's 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 not it's not a jumpy atmospheric movie. i mean it, it's it's an atmospheric it, it's got it's got a weird sort of fairy tale-esque atmosphere to it you're not never quite sure where it's going um there is um there is a revelation in it that's not particularly hard to spot so i won't give any illusions as to what that is um it's not particularly hard to spot but even if you do guess it i think there is enough emotional subtext in the twisted relationship between the children and and the the parental figure that that keeps it going and of course i mean have you um the the, the key thing about the the woman with her face bandaged up is have you ever seen the film eyes without a face the, no uh, 90, late 50s maybe early 60s french horror film about i think i've seen stills but yeah it's it's a pretty it's a pretty famous famously graphic film for the time it's still scary now actually it's very influential it's about um a surgeon whose daughter is disfigured in a car crash and he designs a face transplant for her i've seen this now yeah and you, there's that very famous image of her walking around with that plastic featureless mask mm-hmm. it owes i mean clearly good night mummy owes, owes a lot to that so you know it owes itself to a heritage of, of horror cinema it's very rich and interesting for that not particularly original i don't i don't know that it that it heads anywhere particularly substantial but it, it's it's an enjoyably creepy and atmospheric diversion and the name again good night mummy and has this got to be sought out yes i, I i'd say for fans of you know adventure cinema and people who say that there isn't any lifeblood left in horror movies nowadays it's nonsense you look at something like this and there are clearly imaginative voices still at work Excellent. And speaking of nonsense, so um, <laughs> I'll set the scene for you here. Uh, there was a, a few nights ago I couldn't quite get back to sleep. Um, basically, I didn't want to be coughing, spluttering, the whole, waking the whole house up. So um, I went downstairs, flicked on my generic device and flicked on a certain streaming service. And Nice. Um, nice of what you did. I, I was looking, thinking, right, well, <sighs> I want to stick something. It's 3 a.m. I want to stick something on. I don't really care if I fall asleep to. I fell on Olympus Has Fallen. So that's what we think of the first film. Tell us about London Has Fallen. (sighs) Okay, yeah. So, right, the right answer here would be, if I say to you, what's Olympus Has Fallen like as a movie, you say... Thank you. That's the right answer. All right, noise. Uh, London Has Fallen is even worse, if you can imagine that. With that cast, I can't see how it goes wrong. 
I can. Um, so actually, that's a bit unfair. Um, but I'll get to that. Um, so yeah, Olympus has fallen, which was the you know, crappy sub diehard in the White House thing, in which you know, um, yeah, another movie that tried to mould Gerard Butler as the action film from for modern times, and I just think no, just just no. I can see it, to be honest. I can, I can see it. But the problem was for me that always occurred with Olympus Fallen is that it was up against White House Down. It was up against the absolute batshit crazy Roland Emmerich version of the same story. But the thing is, White House Down was the much more enjoyable film, but that's the one that flopped. Yeah. Olympus Has Fallen is the one that inexplicably did well. I don't quite know how that works, um, considering it was the... <sighs> you needed Channing Tatum's pecs in... A little bit more, I think. Well, I, I think it's I think it's that, and, and also the fact that Olympus Has Fallen came out first. I think if I dare say, I think if White House Down had come out first, you know, it wouldn't have been running to catch up. But anyway, now the, the, the success of Olympus Has Fallen has led to London Has Fallen, uh, in which uh, Jared Butler's character Mike Banning, um, Secret Service agent, built out of bourbon and poor choices, as he says at the start of the movie. Where's he from? Uh, Scotland, America. Cool. Apparently, yeah. So that the same one as Mel Gibson, <laughs> exactly. Oh, and believe me, Gerard Butler's attempt at an accent is worse than Mel Gibson's. Um, actually, that that to give him credit for an accent is just to give him too much credit. But anyway, um, let's so, not mention Sean Connery. Yeah, well, you know, it might be best not to move on, yeah. please. <laughs> yeah. Quickly. Um, so yeah, so him, uh, President's back, played by Aaron Eckhart. Uh, the, the British Prime Minister dies. All the world leaders have to go over to London for his funeral. Um, would you Adam and Eve it? There is a terrorist attack. Oh, no. And s- shit starts to blow up. Ah. In in really appallingly pixelated form, the sort that I could do with Windows Movie Maker, probably. Really? Yeah, it's that bad. It suffers from a lack of budget. Yeah, by the draw, that's understating it. There's a moment that a boat blows up, and I was like, no, you did not just render that explosion like that. You did not just do that. There's an alert and an award for the nerdiest thing you will hear on this podcast. What's that? The way that you rendered that explosion. Yeah, yeah, but but believe me, the, the impact of watching the special effects is is hurts more than, than the nerdy nature of that sentence. Um, So, yeah, what... what um, what Gerard Butler then has to do is run around with the president round the bizarrely deserted streets of London, considering that, that all of the known landmarks in London have been bombed. That's actually a line from the film. All of the known landmarks have been attacked. All the unknown landmarks are all right. So what do they miss? Well, quite a lot, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> so they attack the, They don't attack the London Eye, which would probably be one of the more obvious ones. They attack like the Houses of Parliament and things like that. Um, and of course, on top of the Houses of Parliament, the Italian Prime Minister is having a little guided tour around with his you know, his woman, and then they get blown up like that because, of course, the Italian Prime Minister is amorous and has managed to get his way all the way up to the top of the, the House of Parliament for a little, little little bit of cuddle and then it blows up um, because that's the kind of you know, cretinous stereotyping that this movie is, is involved with um, and you know you think, and you think that's bad um, the, the added twist is that wouldn't you know it all of the British policemen are actually terrorists or all the ones we see are actually terrorists all of the actual decent policemen they're either back at HQ doing that born thing of like looking at the screens going oh my god this is bad or the ones that we see are terrorists and there's a moment where Gerald Butler hits one in the face with a stick 
without and like without a bit of provocation, he doesn't actually bother to check whether this person is actually a real policeman or not. He just attacks him in the face with a stick and says to the president, you know, all these guys are terrorists. And you think, right, okay, so this is this is the kind of level that this is the level that the movie's at. Um What kind of stick? It's it's like it's like a club or something. The guy's running down an alleyway. Gerard Butler pops out, whacks him right behind a bin, and whacks him in the in the throat with it. See, this is where Liam Neeson would have been very good. It, well, yeah, Liam brings his own stick, <laughs> whereas Gerard Butler just steals one <laughs> from the Scots American landscape from which he hails. Um, yeah, so and then there's all there's all that sort of stuff going on, and then they've got to find out, you know, who who's doing what and wouldn't you know it? The, the the evil terrorist you know he's an evil terrorist because he speaks with a non-american accent um is the italian prime minister no no actually no he's he's been blown up it's not him no it's, it's somebody else um somebody else who appears on a video screen and he's got his evil cabal of of sons who are who have infiltrated london and they're all up to no good they're all on like laptops and they want to are they all played by tom hardy <laughs> why would they be played by tom hardy Legend. No, no, because no, because because he's not, he's not, he's not Cockney. No, uh, that's why I said speaking in a non-American accent. They're all, they're all from Cockney's non-American. No, no, no. You know what I mean when I say non-American. I mean the Middle East is what I mean. Is that 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 area in the Middle East, which is completely unspecified? Actually, I think one of them's hiding out in Yemen. I think that's why they just comes. It comes out on screen. Yemen. That's where Colin Farrell's doing some salmon fishing, right? you mcgregor i think you mean that's the one i mean <laughs> um yes yeah, so some crap actor yeah yeah well, pff, careful um yeah so they want to execute the um american president on youtube for propaganda purposes because it doesn't matter that the amorous italian prime minister prime minister has been blown up in the houses of parliament or that the french president has been blown up in a really badly pixelated cgi explosion or that the japanese Prime Minister has been blown up on a bridge and has fallen into the River Thames. It doesn't, doesn't matter about any of that. Doesn't YouTube have like licensing issues with things like that? Well, clearly, these, if these terrorists had come up against that, that would have been, their plan would have been completely foiled. Aren't they not allowed to upload people dying? Well, I, I don't know. Not according to the rules of this film. It's against their terms and conditions, I'm sure. Yeah, well, there you go. There's the fundamental flaw in the movie. Yeah, forget the fact that Gerald Butler isn't american forget the fact that all of the unknown landmarks are all right forget the fact that all of this is complete and utter xenophobic nonsense uh in which all of all of the brits are completely bumbling and hapless um and rely on good old america to come over and you know um do what's the eddie Izzard thing where he goes um he goes oh where have you been having breakfast like Literally, that is the tone of London has fallen. I think you've lost me with yeah. that. All right, so so it's xenophobic, jingoistic nonsense. That's what it is, and it boils down to Gerard Butler running around, stabbing everybody in the brain, um, telling everyone, yeah, thanks for the hand movement. Um, telling it's a stabby, stabby, stabby. Yes, wasn't I know, they? I know what it was. Yeah, don't take that it, the wrong way. No, 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 no. <laughs> and kids don't do that yeah. at home. And he tells everyone to get back to Fudgeheadistan. He doesn't use the word fudge. I've substituted that out of, out of taste. Yeah, because otherwise we'd have to put the whole like little thing on iTunes yeah. saying that we swear. Yes, exactly. Um, it's beyond idiotic. It's really boring. It looks really cheap. Gerard Butler has got no charisma as an action star whatsoever. And it doesn't adhere to YouTube's terms and conditions. No, it, no, it doesn't. Um, and I'm just... 
I'm like, what, what is this nonsense? And the name again? London Has Fallen. Excellent. So I think we're now going to move on to, uh, to a slightly higher um, class of film. Uh, Hitchcock Truffaut tells the story of um, some interviews that happened with the two legendary filmmakers. Um, now, just there's a brief explanation as to who they are. If you don't know who Alfred Hitchcock is, go away and just, just go. Who who wouldn't know who Alfred Hitchcock is? I mean, fair enough, you don't have an in-depth knowledge, but pretty much everyone would know who he is, wouldn't they? I don't, he directed The Birds, he directed Psycho, he directed uh, Rope, Vertigo. We can go on for a long, North long time. North by Northwest. Notorious. Um, Rear Window. Rebecca. Again, we can go on for a long, long time. We know who Alfred Hitchcock is. We do. Yep. And the people that are going to watch this film will have to know who Alfred Hitchcock is. Because if you don't know who Alfred Hitchcock is, you've got no chance about Francois Truffaut. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that, that's actually an interesting point because I think that this movie does actually have appeal for cineasts, for film buffs, and also newcomers. I think that's a testament to how well Kirk Jones actually constructs it, to be honest. So, yeah, like you say, um, the 1962 series of interviews... Uh, in w- at which time uh, Hitchcock was in post-production on The Birds. Um, Francois Truffaut at that point was the rising star of the Nouvelle Vague, the French New Wave, which was famously you know, the style of cinema that was throwing all of Hitchcock's formal rules out of the window. Um, yeah, well, it all sort of stemmed from the, the fact that in France, due to the war, they didn't have a lot of films until almost yes. in bulk. It was effectively like the way that certain streaming services dump every episode of a CV series at one time. They had all of Hitchcock's films at one time to watch. And as they were watching through people like Hitchcock, people like William Wyler, they managed to notice things which ended up in the auteur theory, which in itself has... They've noticed these things that directors managed to put their own personal stamps. And then they started writing about it and thought, let's try it ourselves. That's where people like Jean-Luc Godard came from as well. Yeah. Sorry for a background on French New Wave that people don't know, <laughs> may or may not what, know or need. What he said. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, well, yeah, I mean, obviously you have the Francois Truffaut emerging from the Cahiers du Cinema, which was the French film magazine, which informed a lot of prospective filmmakers about these sorts of filmmakers. But Isn't the, it still going? Uh, is it still going? I don't know, actually. I thought it stopped. Maybe it is still going. Tweet us and let us know yeah, yeah, at Culture Mirrors. Yeah. Um, but the, the idea is so you have these two very, very different filmmakers, very different backgrounds. On the one hand, Hitchcock, very, very, well, the, the preeminent British director, was very comfortable in the studio system, lots of back projections, said that actors are cattle, was famously not sympathetic towards actors at all. That actually comes out in the documentary. It's quite amusing. You hear him say that quote, which is quite in that very drawling voice. Uh, so. And then Truffaut, very raw, lots of improvisation, untested actors. So these these two very, very different filmmakers, but both working within the medium of cinema. Um, and they, um, Truffaut's love of Hitchcock, um, you know, stemmed, you know, um, was was very, very apparent. And you get a lovely shot of when the um, Truffaut's letter that he sent to Hitchcock and Hitchcock's response, in which he was enormously flattered at this young French filmmaker, clearly adored his movies, and therefore he agreed to these series of interviews that ultimately led to Truffaut's book um, based on the interviews, which influenced pretty much every single filmmaker that that you know came, rose to prominence after that. And indeed, this film has got interviews with the likes of you know Martin Scorsese, David Fincher, Richard Linklater, and so on. That's the one I thought you would like. Linklater. I was happy at Linklater, but I was a little bit yeah. gutted you didn't mention Paul Schrader. Yeah, Paul Schrader is in there as well. Yeah, and um, so and and it, and it's it's a it's a really really. Um, interesting documentary for the way that it, it 
it contextualizes this interview as more than just an interview. This really was cinema history in the making. And at the point that it makes the very clear point at the at the moment when these interviews took place, Hitchcock was regarded by the vast majority of people as little more than than a populist entertainer, than the master of suspense. And it took Truffaut to really recontextualize him as one of the great pioneering filmmakers of all time in terms of his use of subjective camera of voyeurism of lighting of music of performance um and really it was it was probably this interview as much as anything that helped cement hitchcock as the great figure of world cinema that he was and this plays into all the you know the responses um that we see from all the other filmmakers that i've just mentioned so it's you know it makes the case for you know for these series of interviews for being enormously important which they were and it does it in a really really lively really informative really engaging way um obviously the, the contributions from the likes of of martin scorsese are guaranteed to get film fans you know, with a massive great big grin because you can see their enthusiasm talking about this particular period in history well scorsese was the tarantino of his day wasn't he Yes, he was the little fanboy that was coming up, going, "I want to be a lot like these people," and then he managed to find his own directorial voice. Yeah, I would say that um, Scorsese is not as much of a magpie as Tarantino. I mean, Tarantino, Tarantino's style is stealing other people's stuff, whereas I'd say Scorsese has his own. That's what I mean. He yeah, yeah, came up as a fanboy, but then yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas, whereas Tarantino has stayed in that groove, let's be honest, pretty much. Yeah, but we're talking about the influence of both the interviews and the French New Wave. I mean, yeah. even talking of Tarantino, his production company is a band apart. Yes. Which is, of course, Jean-Luc Godard. Yes. Thank you. There was no point to that. <laughs> yeah, so it's good. I forgot about that. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a really, really... Um, um, engrossing documentary that takes you know a relatively what might be seen as a relatively minor incident and fans out and really explores its impact and why it's so important um, it, it does draw um, it explores the differences between the two filmmakers but it also with great warmth examines the clear respect that existed between the two of them one of the most entertaining things actually is when the, the still photographs of the behind the scenes of the interview here Hitchcock Make, giving directions to the photographer about how they should do it, how they should arrange themselves. That's really, really nice. So, and then he employed Bernard Herrmann to score the whole thing. What the? Uh, well, well, it were well, interesting. I mean, I, I it, no, actually, I was going to say the Birds was their last collaboration. Wasn't there? They worked together on Marnie. Um, that was their last collaboration. Sean Connery. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, Second mention for him. Yes. Yep. Uh, and, Not and, bad for a retired actor. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think that it, it gets to grips with both Hitchcock and Truffaut's legacy. I mean, Vertigo is, is broken down to a really, really interesting extent. I mean, certainly you get to hear Hitchcock's own analysis of the reveal scene where Kim Novak walks out of the bathroom. No spoilers. No, no. Um, but that, that scene, hearing Hitchcock's own interpretation of that was really, really good. And also hearing his reaction to Truffaut's The 400 Blows, which I would consider one of the greatest films ever made. It's fantastic. Have you seen that? Yes, I had yeah. to. I studied it. I studied it in comparison to This Is England. Oh, that's a, actually, that's a really... Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that, yeah. Uh, there, there's a moment where they're talking about in The 400 Blows, the Antoine... Dwanel, is that the actor who plays yes. the central character? Um, he's walking. He's walking through across the street with his mate, and I think he spots his mother with another man. 
Um, and it's all about how the cutting on the reaction and about how the, the editing suggests who might have seen what. And you get to hear Hitchcock in voiceover reacting to how that scene is constructed. And it's all these really little juicy little anecdotes that are, you know, catnip for film fans. But I think it's also accessible enough for people who don't particularly know about Hitchcock or Truffaut. Uh, I think it may be a bit... It's, it's very light on context in terms of Hitchcock's British films because that's basically, that's where he started. Although he got more acclaim for his Hollywood work, I think maybe it could have gone into a bit more depth about that, about his origins. But then again, it's about the interview. Um, and when it's on that grounding, it's really, really informative and entertaining. I really liked it. Do you think Ron Howard will direct a fictionalised version of this film <laughs> with Anthony Hopkins as Hitchcock. With the fat suit and the jowls on. Yeah. He's like, are you going to see my movie? That's basically what he sounded like, wasn't it? Was that a Anthony Hopkins impression? Yeah, it was, of... a, ba- it was a bad Anthony Hopkins impression. Yeah, although the, his impression of Hitchcock wasn't very good anyway, I think. But, yeah, just... I would quite like to see a Ron Howard version of this. Yeah, 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 yeah. They they could they could dramatise it actually. Yeah, I mock, but yeah. I would. Yeah, there, there's they, they, as far as I can tell from from Hitchcock Truffaut, there was no antagonism in it. There wasn't anything dramatic to extract from it. It was a conversation and a very pleasant one through an interpreter. Yeah, and the name again, Hitchcock Truffaut. Excellent. So we've avoided like the plague. Uh, one particular film that just doesn't seem very good <laughs> i've not seen it like i mentioned uh due to the the stinking cold that i have had um i've been housebound and trying to keep it to myself also um i just didn't want to cough in the middle of the cinema and ruin everyone else's film so um tell us about grimsby you wouldn't have been ruining anything you would have been making it more entertaining tell us <laughs> Ta- pray pray tell us more <laughs> oh you said into a shakespeare adaptation there pretty pretty in part about grimsby you're more the expert on Shakespeare than I am. I'm no, no expert, believe me. Uh, so um, Move swiftly on. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, latest film from Sash Baron Cohen, um, who obviously, you know, rose prominence with Ali G, uh, Borat and Bruno. Um, Didn't he do another one? Did he? I don't know. Maybe. Um, well, those, those are his most famous. Oh, did the, the, the Dictator you're thinking of. Oh, yeah. The Dictator, yeah. This, this, the Grimsby owes more um, to The Dictator than it does to his other ones. I have to say, I'm not a massive fan of Sash Baron Cohen because I think his brand of humour, the whole mockumentary, catching people on the fly, exposing you know people's neuroses in interview format, works well in very short five-minute bursts. But I don't think the idea is strong enough to sustain either Borat or Bruno it's in entirety obviously Ali G in the house was just horrible and that really completely torpedoed his best character so he re- he ruined his own character in film version really although obviously at that point Sash Baron Cohen was still somewhat finding his feet um probably as, as a comic I at least do kind of, of disagree with you in that respect what, um but yeah uh, Ali G I'll completely get on board with you but yeah. the what he does and what he's really clever at doing in those films is taking a character that and trying to judge people's response to it. Yes. Take yep. absolutely lampooning a specific type of person. So in Borat as an example, he's a, basically racist. That's like and he judges people's response to that and you actually end up seeing the world as a slightly better place as a result of his really horrible character. Similar thing in in Bruno where he's that fashionista and he's just so over the top. And you manage to see how people deal with him. 
How does that work in Grimsby? Well, it doesn't work in Grimsby because Grimsby doesn't have any of that satire, regardless of the fact that I have very, very mixed feelings about Bora and Bruno. And I think that what you've just said there, it it comes through in patches in Bora and Bruno, but it, it's not it's not the the gag rate for me isn't consistent enough to make those either of those films comic masterpieces. I know a lot of people would disagree with me and Bora on that front. On that, I agree with you. Yeah, um, but you know, but only if you can tell me Borat's full name. Sagdiev. No, the film. Oh. For make benefit glorious nation of Kazakhstan or something. You missed the cultural learning. Cultural. <laughs> oh, that's where. I'm. Do not fail me, Gypsy. All I want from you is your tears. Give them to me, or I will take them. There you go. That made up for the fact that I don't know the title, isn't it? No. Who is this lady? Who I no. Stop. <laughs> Sorry. Stop. But it, regardless of my feelings on Borat and Bruno, at least they had some kind of, they had some sort of nasty satirical edge to them. At least there was a sense of recklessness and controversy and the fact that, you know, clearly he's very, very good at disappearing into a character and provoking people. Grimsby, unfortunately, has got none of that. You know, it's a much more gutless conventional construction like the dictator which is just clad in all these gross out gags that you get in all of these standard comedies nowadays and which has become increasingly wearisome so the 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 central nub of the thing is that he is knobby what's a nub nub that the essence you know the the key point of it um uh, he is a lager lout from Grimsby called Nobby, um, who was separated from his young his brother Sebastian at a young age. Sebastian, played by Mark Strong, is now this really slick, suave secret agent who is in the middle of trying to prevent an assassination attempt where Nobby, for reasons that aren't actually quite explained in the movie, manages to find out where he is, even though he's on this top secret mission. Um, he um, m- messes up Sebastian's um, assassination attempt which results in the AIDS inflected blood of a young child um, flying into Daniel Radcliffe's mouth no it's not actually Daniel Radcliffe playing him it's a not very good lookalikey but the idea is that Daniel Radcliffe now is infected with AIDS that's witty yeah. let's make AIDS jokes because A that's appropriate and B that's timely can I just say that at the risk of sounding very nasty Team America is very very funny but then Team America actually had a satirical intent to it it wasn't just Let's just be gross in the manner of Grimsby, although it was gross, obviously Team America, but there was something gross. to it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, this is just this is just this is just boring gross. So what then happens is that they have to he he sabotages Sebastian's mission. They temporarily go into hiding in Grimsby, and then they realise that they have to do some espionage stuff, which results in them going to um, South Africa um, for some reason. Um, and I know the reason. What? Is it so an elephant can show up? Yeah. Um, and there, yeah, there is a scene. How do I put this? Um, Remember, we don't want our clean rating taken away from us. No, no. This is currently what? Is this at PG 12A level at the moment? Yes. Yeah. If I, if I were to describe what happened, it would shoot straight away into a 15. Don't say the word shoot. Subtle. Thanks for the, the subtle win. Um, yes, they. No, I, I, I don't actually want to describe it because, yeah, um, it's just. And and you know what? That 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 scene in all of its grotesquery, although it is grotesque, actually encapsulates what's wrong with the movie. And as much as it's gross, but there's no edge to it. 
it's the sort of gross that you've seen lots and lots of times before in these sorts of movies. I mean, it does approach a slightly surreal, I can't quite believe they've gone there thing, but there's nothing new about it. There's no, there's a lot of bark, but there's no bite to it. Whereas in Borat, you actually got, I actually felt quite uncomfortable in a lot of places, intentionally so, because that was the idea of it. There's nothing really uncomfortable about this. I mean, really... It's a very, very conservative comedy in spite of all the smut that they throw at the screen. There's no there's no wit to it. And the depiction of... They all, before this came out, there was all the controversy about the real residents of Grimsby were getting very, very annoyed that one, they were being lampooned, and two, that Sasha Baron Cohen hadn't actually bothered to film it in Grimsby. It was filmed in Southend, apparently. Boo-hoo. I'm from Barry. Grow up here. Is, does, does it bear comparison? I've not been to Barry. Um, the point I'm more getting at is that they're kicking off about that. Yeah. We've got Nessa. Oh, right, okay. Nessa's, Nessa's not a bad representation of Barry, is she? We're talking about Gavin and Stacey, by the way, for people who don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> again, anyone that doesn't know. Um, no, what I'm more getting at is that she's not the type of person you'd want to know, is she? But, but blimey, she, she's a she's a saint compared to Grim, compared to Nobby. Um just, is that a pairing you'd ever see? <laughs> but the, the whole thing is that, you know, people were supposedly in uproar about Grimsby being lampooned in this movie before it came out. Incidentally, it was meant to have come out last year and they delayed it. You can quite clearly see that this has been very, very haphazardly edited. It's only 80 minutes long and one gets a sense that there was a longer edit of this film, maybe a better edit in there somewhere, but it's been completely truncated and chopped down. But there's no... There's no higher purpose to the the depiction of Grimsby in the movie. You get the obligatory shots of like women walking down, you know, ch- let's say overweight women walking down the street with, you know, is that your polite way of putting it? Yeah, my it. polite way of putting it, of you know, pushing prams, people falling out of doorways, everything like that. And you think, you know what? This is about as spiky as a Daily Mail headline. It's nothing. There's nothing remotely wounding about it. I've just. It's just it's just not very clever. It's 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 a blunt instrument in terms of its satire. And say what you will about Bora and Bruno, at least they had targets and they went for them. This doesn't seem to know what its target is, and it's just a just very limp, um, very unremarkable. I don't think Sasha Baron Cohen's performance is actually very good at all. Actually, I actually think it's quite a bad performance. And the worst thing you could say about it is that anybody could have made this. It could have been written by and starring anybody. There is none of that Sasha Baron Cohen edge that you have in his other films. Would a Jason Statham cameo have improved it? Yeah, a Jason Statham cameo improves everything. Uh, and I was referring more to Spy, but okay. Well, that was more than a cameo. I mean, that was a proper full-on sporting performance in which he was brilliant. Yeah, but imagine like the one scene of him in this where he's sat on a chair saying how he's been injured in the past. But the, the key difference is Spy was actually a great film in addition to Jason Statham, whereas this just isn't is this he would be the good element in a not very good movie whereas in spy he was very good and the film was actually good and this is a film with mark strong in and you're saying that yeah and mark strong he is the best thing in it because he's mark strong and he's one of our greatest actors and he does keep a straight face in spite of the indignities that he's forced to go through let's say covered with thank you (laughs) um yeah, uh, and it's just you know, it's it's just I I wasn't I wasn't annoyed by it. I wasn't offended by it, which is weird considering the amount of stuff that it throws at you, literally and figuratively. Um, it leave the puns to me. Is your thing? Yeah, it just it, it's just a dirt a dirty exercise that goes in one ear and out the other. I didn't really feel any way about it. Really, there's just 
there's nothing there. It's just it's limp. And the name again? Grimsby. Excellent. So, regular listeners to this podcast may or may not have heard that Sean has a slight love of uh, of soundtracks. Um, this week, he's been listening to something in particular, which strikes me as a little bit strange. How so? Well, it's a soundtrack to an animated film. Yes. Strange. The, some of the greatest soundtracks ever made have been written, made for animated films. Yes, but that's enough about The Lion King. Yeah, the Lion King is great. Um, Jerry Goldsmith, Secret of Nim and Mulan, two of the greatest animated scores ever made. Who's he? Composed. Very funny. You're not baiting me with that one. <laughs> oh, incidentally, you can listen to my... Oh, no, sorry, I won't mention the other podcast on which I've talked about Jerry Goldsmith because I know it offends you. Yeah, because you talked about Jerry Goldsmith on one of the, our podcasts. Yeah, and I stole the material. And you. Put it on another one. <laughs> what am I? Hussy. <laughs> Harlots. Um, yeah, the, at the, well, animation has obviously been around since the birth of cinema and therefore it brings with it a really rich history of, of scores. I mean, you think of the Disney movies. Um but obviously we're not talking about Disney here, we're talking about a, a DreamWorks film. I thought you were going to say that it's an unusual choice because it's composed by Hans Zimmer, about whom I've not been especially complimentary on this podcast. You just complimented his work on The Lion King. Yes, and The Lion King is one of his greatest scores. He got an Oscar for that. Yeah, because, um, you know, Elton John and Tim Rice didn't do anything for it. No, they did the songs, they didn't do the score. They did isolated four or five minute bits, whereas Hans Zimmer did the whole tapestry of music that goes from start to finish. Thank you, yeah, you're pretending to snort, yeah. Hans Zimmer was the really important factor in this, but... Is that more entertaining than London Has Fallen? What? You're snoring? No, what you've just mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) Both are actually more entertaining. Your explanation on to why Hans Zimmer and Elton John and... Yeah, yeah, it is more entertaining, yeah. Um, But I've I've not been very complimentary about the vast majority of Hans Zimmer's He's a very, very controversial figure, the the most controversial figure in the, in the soundtrack world. Why? Because he's, well, in recent years, he's become a parody of himself. He's got this method of film scoring whereby he has basically a, a factory, a stable of composers, of ghostwriters. He's got this studio in Los Angeles in which he will harbour aspiring composers. And very often he'll have a multitude of composers working on his own scores with him, which is very, very controversial because the vast majority of film composers, let's be honest, put their own blood, sweat and tears into it. Whereas Hans Zimmer will give bits and pieces to various other people, which is a very, very contentious issue. And it raises the whole issue of ownership. Can something ever be called a Hans Zimmer score if it's not been solely composed by him? Isn't that exactly how old school screenwriters used to work? Well, yeah, it, it's it, and again, I think that there, there have been collaborative film scores done in the past, so it's a contentious issue. There isn't a clear side in it, but what what frustrates me is that Zimmer has popularised a tone of score, a style of score that has unfortunately been allowed to overtake a lot of movies nowadays. You know exactly what I'm referring to the sound of the recent Batman movies, which I like those films. The scores are pretty awful, I'd say, with some highlights. You're getting so animated. Yeah, I know I am. and It's very personal to me. I don't like what Hans Zimmer did on those movies, and I don't like the fact that all of these Hollywood executives have now picked it up and they've now said, you know what, all superior scores need to sound like that. You know what, I think there's a separate podcast. Yeah, there is actually. Yeah, we'll get into that, yeah. Yeah. Um, Whereas what Kung Fu Panda does, it demonstrates that, you know what, Hans Zimmer can actually compose music as opposed to the noise that he inflicted on us with Batman. But didn't Hans Zimmer not do this one or did? 
Well, uh, there, you, there you go. You see, there you've brought up the, the contentious this year. He's actually, um, yeah, co-composed it with Lorne Balfe, with whom Hans Zimmer has worked very, very often before. And indeed, Lorne Balfe might be able to claim the vast majority of the credit for this score. No one knows. No one knows the exact nature of what Hans Zimmer does and what his ghostwriters do. But what I can say is that the end result of this score is it's re- it's really nice and it's one of the most accessible and melodic and lyrical things that Hans Zimmer has done in a long time and say what you will about Hans Zimmer when he emerged in the 80s and early 90s he was really really innovative he did things like um, Rain Man and Backdraft and Beyond Rangoon and it's only really in the last 10 years that I've started to go off his music anything up to about 2001 his melodic experiment you know experimental interesting stuff is that's, great that's now 15 years ago just to make you feel slightly Fif- older yeah, thank you. Yeah, see, I, I now feel like Benjamin Button. <laughs> so, yeah. You look like him. Thank you very much. I won't tell you yeah. which end of the which film. end of the spectrum. Yeah, um, but I think this gets back to Kung Fu Panda Three. Gets back to the, the Hans Zimmer that actually bothers to compose melody, to compose rhythm, to build a score out of distinctive building blocks instead of just going, which is basically what the Batman scores sound like. Let's be honest, which is insufferably tedious. Um, and doesn't elevate the movie. And I'm, try- I'm trying to bait you into a reaction here because I can see what this <laughs> Well, I could either play the part or I could just let you get on with it. And the yeah. fact is, I kind of agree with you. Thank you. When it comes really? to the. Yeah, I know. Shocking. I'm actually surprised. Um, the Dark Knight's a work of genius, but when it comes to the score, I completely understand what you're saying. So yeah. rather than play the part of standing up for the Batman films. I kind of agree. Thank so. you. <laughs> That's the last time I'm saying that. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Um, but yeah, so Kung Fu Panda 3, I really liked. You've got, um, the, there's input from pianist um, Lang Lang and Chinese cellist Zhan Wang. I'm hoping pronouncing that correctly. You're probably not, but that's yep. fine. We've Thank just offended all of Asia. <laughs> um, and so it's a really sumptuous score that's obviously resplendent in the sounds of, of the Far East. And the, actually, the really weirdly peculiar thing, to draw it back to the more controversial side of Hans Zimmer, I didn't actually know this until recently. I looked this up. The, th- the main theme in Kung Fu Panda 3 for Kai, who is the villain, voiced by J.K. Simmons. Incidentally, we will review, I've seen the film, we'll review it imminently i will see the film yeah yeah. um we'll review it on the next podcast um the theme for kai there's a little motif that is repeated every time he turns up and it actually stuck in my head wouldn't um imagine my surprise when i found out that that's actually a melody from from the band imagine dragons who did who did a song on transformers age of extinction apparently it's it's a lift from their song called i'm so sorry i don't know the song but i was like oh i thought that was a hans zimmer piece it looks like he's he's either cribbed it or they've done it they've adapted their own melody themselves i don't quite know why that's happened again this this would throw into question the whole notion of how does Hans zimmer compose his scores and what goes into certain creative decisions maybe they originally composed it what the theme yeah why would they have done it though why would you get imagine dragons to compose one theme in a score why would you get a room full of composers to compose something well, and then put well your that's name because on it. Hans Zimmer is orchestrating them he's in charge of them I don't understand I mean surely it would cost an absolute load of money to get a band to come in and write one piece of music which is already based on something they've already done surely <laughs> I don't know I'm just, I'm just spitballing here I don't know I have no answer yeah I don't, I don't have an answer either um, so it's very peculiar but it's a really luscious lovely score there are moments of choral beauty that are as gorgeous as anything Hans Zimmer's done. I mean, Hans Zimmer is capable of beautiful work. If you listen to 
beyond Rangoon or Hannibal, weirdly enough. I think the score of Hannibal's actually got some really, really beautiful gothic romance in it, and that's a really underrated score. Was that his last good score? Yeah, I think it probably was, actually, that or Black Hawk Down. Actually, no, he's done some decent stuff in recent years. The first Sherlock Holmes score was good, really good. There's something else um, that's popped out of my head. But yeah, um, so I think this is Hans Zimmer back on top form. And the name of the film? Kung Fu Panda 3. And the soundtrack is now available. So, as I have been cooped up and not able to disrupt people with my coughing and spluttering and undoubtedly audible noises that you've probably heard throughout the course of this podcast, um, I have been locked up indoors watching a lot of TV. So, last week saw the premiere of a completely new uh, DC show. So we've got Arrow, we've got Flash, we've got Supergirl. Now we've got Legends of Tomorrow, which has basically got the the ragtag, the B characters of the other two shows, the other two main shows, Arrow and Flash, and put them together in uh, an ensemble piece with uh, Arthur Darville, he of Doctor Who fame. He comes in and basically plays his own version of the Doctor, and they go through all sorts of different uh, time frames, and they they have a completely different set of adventures every single episode, and because they are in the time stream, they can literally go anywhere. It's brilliant. So, um, just when you say B characters, do you mean that in a detrimental way, or just like an affectionate? No, that's sort of what yeah. they are. Then you know they're not the main characters, not the the core characters to Arrow, to Flash. They're people that are very much. Um, people such as in the second or the third series of Arrow, they had Raymond Palmer played by Brandon Routh, and he ends up being almost DC's version of Ant-Man called The Atom. He's a very intelligent scientist, but he served a purpose in the story for Arrow, and then he was sort of done, so they've picked him up and put him into this show. And it, it's people like that, that people that have have been in those other shows, they could well go back to those other shows, but they've picked them up and used them, put them all together as a ragtag. And um, because of the time frames that they can do and because of the different alternate universes and things like that, the possibilities are endless. And the fact that they've got these characters as leads in a main show that's got DC's name slapped all over it, is, is wonderful. So that is, is on Skyward on Thursdays, I do believe. Um, it's called DC's Legends of Tomorrow. Also, this past, uh, this past week, actually, we've had a brand new series of House of Cards drop. Uh, House of Cards, for those of you that don't know, follow uh, the actions of Kevin Spacey. Yeah, you can put your hand up. You should, you have the, the ability to watch this. I tried to watch, I tried to watch the first couple of episodes and I couldn't get into it at all. I don't know why. I, I just found it very cold. Directed by David Fincher. Yes. Yeah. Which may explain that. Um, so th- I read early, the other day when I was doing a bit of research on it that um, Fincher basically put out a set of rules for the any incoming directors on House of Cards. One of the main rules that from moving the camera is really really frowned upon you go from you go from cold shot to cold shot which is quite yeah so um but the, the whole point is that you follow francis underwood um and his wife claire and for anybody that's not seen up until the final series not the one that's just released the one before i'm going to tell you what happens it sort of has to be done when Spoiler you're talking. When you're talking about this next series, it sort of has to be done. So Frank is president. He's up for uh, re-election or election in his case because nobody's actually voted for him up until this point. And uh, right at the end of the last series, Claire said she was going to leave. 
and this series begins with the impact of both her revelation as well as him on the campaign trail without her. Um, I won't go into what does happen episode by episode, um, but suffice to say, it's the best series since the first. The first is such a high watermark, so to to have matched it with with the fourth series is something to behold. Um, obviously, we've now got to wait another year for the next series, but um, it is just a wonderful piece of, of television writing. And kudos to, to Netflix for A, keeping it going, B, keeping to finance it, and C, letting them do what they want. There's a lot to be said. So um, I believe this is the, the last series that Bo Willimon, the um, showrunner, I believe this is the last one that he's going to be involved in. And boy, is he put together a hell of a series. It's it's an impressive achievement, isn't it, when you consider that it's spun off from a British series that went for, what, one one series? Two. Is it? Two series, yeah. I mean, it's really taken on a life of its own, hasn't it? And it's really forged its own identity and audience. I mean, that that's that's nothing to be sniffed at. No, exactly. And it it was in itself. It is a game changer because of the way that it, it, we're seeing the effects of it now. The way that it um, took they took it out to to a load of networks, and all of the networks turned it down. And Netflix took it on, and then made it what it is today. So um, I think there's that it is it will go down in history as as what it's been in terms of its industry. But to be so great on the back of it is also a great achievement. So that's House of Cards. That's available on Netflix. You can watch the entire series if you really want to. Um, or if you've got a life, you can watch it in little batches. We have been trailing for months and months and months. Ever since the first teaser, you mentioned the X-Files returning. What are you making of the series so far? Very mixed, I have to say. It's like they're straining to get the magic back. And I, I, I say that as somebody who has long been a fan of the X-Files. It's a weird thing. Um the X-Files, to an extent, was very much of its time. It started in the early 90s, and it was it was radical for the way that, you know, it encouraged people to be distrustful of governments. You know, it had that paranoid atmosphere. You know, Julian Anderson's character, Scully, was groundbreaking for being, you know, a you know a, a scientist and, an, and a female agent, you know, at a time when such things, you know, weren't particularly prevalent. But I think that at the moment... It's the chemistry between Mulder, David Duchovny and Scully that, that's keeping it afloat. Because I think that tonally, I, I've, I've not seen the third episode, the Darren Morgan one, um, which I'm told, reliably told by yourself and several others, has been the best one so far. Yes, but I'm slightly behind myself. Um, yeah. You've seen the fourth one, whereas I haven't. Yeah. Um, I mean, Darren Morgan is often credited with being one of the best writers throughout the history of the X-Files. He only, he only did a smattering of episodes, but he very often did the comic ones. And the X-Files was very, very good at being comic. The X-Files was brilliant at sending itself up. For a show that's often so brooding and so scary, it can actually be really, really funny when it wants to be. That's um, exactly what the third episode is. Yes, yeah. Um, but I think the fourth one, which was the one in the UK, was on last week... Um, was very very strange i mean it was a very strange mixture of what's called the monster of the week episodes in which you have Mulder and scully going up against a creature mixed very haphazardly with an ongoing mythology thing about scully's mum dying in a hospital i mean they seem to come from two completely different episodes and it just didn't come together at all and it seems like they are really straining to find their feet i don't know whether that's because it's only six episodes long and they have to, they're trying to compress all the mythology but it's it, it's not it's not caught fire yet for me well, as it's already finished over in America, there's talk about whether there's going to be another. Apparently, ratings-wise for Fox, it's been really, really yeah, successful. Yeah, it's done really well, yeah. Um, so, 
chances are they're going to try and throw some money at it to to get that um, to get another series done. Um, obviously, we wait and see for the the remaining. There's one on, I believe, tonight as we record this. This is Monday, um, and then obviously we'll have the last one, I guess, next week. Yeah. So um, that's something to look forward to, and then we can judge the series as a whole. And uh, you will have to catch up with that third episode. Ongoing in terms of what's uh, happening on TV, we've got the Night Manager. Uh, that's on the BBC. Uh, we have our resident favourite, Tom Hiddleston, uh, who Sean has gushed and gushed over in previous podcasts. And uh, despite paying his licence fee and having the catch-up streaming services, Sean's not watched this. Sorry, Tom, if you're listening. Well, yeah. I'm sure he will give us a phone call in one of his many voices. I might just pass out. I'm not sure what you'd do. <laughs> we might have to get Mark Strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> So um, this Night Manager stars uh, Tom Hiddleston as well as Hugh Laurie as the main antagonist. Uh, just almost a Rupert Murdoch, Richard Branson crossover is brilliant. Just he's chewing the scenery and he's clearly really enjoying it and he's very, very good. Um, we've got Olivia Coleman in there as well. She's kind of a bit part at the moment, so hopefully she might pick up uh, a little bit. Uh, Tom Hiddleston obviously being great. So um, obviously, well, and it's just one of those things that you don't quite know where it's going to go next. I believe it's based on the John Le Carre book, yes, um, which I obviously have not read. So um, it's twisty and turny. It's dark. It's brooding. It's light on humour, but it's it's very very good. Um, so that's definitely worth watching. So, so, so you mean Tom Hiddleston doesn't bust out his Chris Evans impression? Which one, the ginger one or Captain America? No, the Captain America one. Oh. It's spot. Have you not seen that? No. It's spot on. It's scary. You need to watch that. Okay. It's absolutely brilliant. Okay. <laughs> now the time of the podcast for Sean to whore himself out. So Sean, where else can people read or hear you? Well, should we use um, my uh, recently published article, very recently published article on Den of Geek as a launching point? Um, no. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. So okay. Zero way. I'll completely ignore you. Um, <laughs> It's like being home. <laughs> so, yeah, my, my article about the 25 most underrated scores of the 2000s has gone up on Den of Geek. You can find my other articles along similar lines for the 80s and 90s on there as well. I also write Flickering Myth, um, mfiles.co.uk. Um, you can also hear my podcast with Tony Black at Black Hole Cinema on The Composers. We have an ongoing uh, series of podcasts about film composers, which, Andy, I know you're thrilled about. Because um, I I totally don't crib ideas uh, for that, <laughs> yeah. And uh, um, um, you can find me on Twitter at Seano twenty two. So I think that'll do, won't it? I think you can plug us now. Can I? Go yeah. ahead. Uh, so yeah, you can find us at Cultural Mirrors, uh, and you can obviously also find us on iTunes now. So. Yeah, and you can also go on the Cultural Mirrors website, culturalmirrors.com, where you can find some of the old blogs that I have written. Um, I do intend to pick up writing, but chances are, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do all the hard work and just fill in with the rest of the stuff. It's fine. So on the website, you will not find anything written by Sean. <laughs> just saying. Um, I'll suffer through Grimsby and things like that and just, yeah yeah I'm watching every episode of X-Files how, how is that as painful an experience as watching Grimsby <laughs> what you or just... London Has Fallen well okay that's fine I will take that <laughs> I, I don't really watch crap TV so there we go <laughs> time is too precious right so 
I wouldn't know. No. You'll just sit and watch films that no one else will watch, like Goodnight Mummy. Anyway. <laughs> no, that that's unfair. That's unfair. That was really good. If you're going to criticise anything, criticise London has fallen from today, all right? But I bet you more people will go and watch it. Well, they're idiots, to be honest. Sorry, anyone who's seen London has fallen and liked it, <laughs> but it's true. Damning indeed. <laughs> that will just about do us for the Culture Mirrors podcast, purely because we don't want to piss off everyone else. <laughs> What we're going to do now is cover some of the previews from uh, from what we're going to do in the, the next podcast. So uh, coming out soon will be Sean. High Rise. Directed by? Ben Wheatley. Starring? Tom Hiddleston. Who's he then? Don't know. If only he made a TV show. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, well, I think we're both correct in saying we're both really looking forward to this. Yeah. Um, I read J.G. Ballard's novel on which it's based last year and it's savage and brilliant and despite the fact that it was written in the 70s even more relevant than now obviously the story of young doctor Robert Lang played by Tom Hiddleston moves into a plush London high-rise development becomes caught in the the insular self-enclosed atmosphere and all of a sudden that sort of tribal war bloodshed breaks out between the various floors really really savage interesting novel um, hopefully Ben Wheatley can do it justice. Um, ben Wheatley is yet to make a film that I find wholeheartedly satisfying. I thought bits of Kill List satisfy, um, sightseers in a field in England were good. I don't think any of them came together that well. What do you think? What, what's your thoughts I've only on seen it? a field in England, so I can't comment on that. What, what did you think of that? Did you? I kind of agree with you in that it's, um, it is one of those that there are very certain scenes that we discussed before the podcast. Or was it on the podcast? I can't remember. I think it was it might before. Have been, yeah, before, yeah. We were in this room. It confuses me. Um, <laughs> and I'm doped up on what cough the, medicine. What the padded cells, you mean? There is actually padding on the wall. There is soundproof padding. Yeah, I'll get into that in a bit. But um, <laughs> I mean, I'll jump into it because it looks fun. You know that bit and get into the Greek stroke the furry wall? Jump into the padded wall. Um, yeah, I just made a get into the Greek reference. Thank you. <laughs> I could feel the burn. Yeah. <laughs> also coming out is Anomalisia, The Witch, and Zootropolis. It's a really good month for movies, actually. The Witch obviously made a huge splash at Sundance last year. It's directed by Robert Eggers. It's the 17th, I believe, century horror movie about a Puritan family in America who are banished to the edge of a woods and then they encounter something supernatural or is the evil within themselves. Uh, apparently it's a bit ambivalent it looks amazing it's had amazing reviews so when's that going to cast its spell on us oi boom there you go well we'll find out which one of us will go and see it yeah yeah you'll, you know I'm sure we'll fly there on our broom and <laughs> these are getting worse aren't they <laughs> so I was, I was just bad <laughs> anyway um, so um, and Anomalisa the stop motion film from Charlie Kaufman yeah uh, uh, which yeah looks typically genre defying and weird and quite brilliant actually it's interesting isn't it there, there was there was a lot of talk about this towards the end of last year and it's it's a, it's arrival over here appears to have been quite muted there isn't i haven't really seen a lot being written about it no that is such. true i don't know why that is probably because the award seasons have now happened and it's not one and it's yeah sort of going away yeah i suppose and Zootropolis, the um, Disney film. Uh, and the Disney film that has dethroned Deadpool at the box office, having held the top spot for three weeks. Only in America, though, so... Well, yeah, it's apparently it's posted Disney's highest ever opening in China. It's done very well there. 
Wow. And it's had amazing reviews. And apparently it's got a bit of the sort of satirical edge to it that Grimsby was lacking, apparently. That's what the other reviews have said about Zootropolis. Excellent. So we look forward to that one. So that will just about do us for the Culture Mirrors podcast for this week. I'm Andy Williams. I'm Sean Wilson. And I'm off to go and study up on some French New Wave. See you soon.